millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Alina and I, unsurprisingly, because we're excited every day, are excited today because finally we've managed to find someone um, who's going to talk to us about a really interesting aspect of the Vietnam War, which is something we haven't touched on yet. Alina, who's with us? So Greg Jones is a foreign correspondent, investigative reporter, historian and award-winning author. He's a Pulitzer Prize finalist and has written some award-winning books like Honour in the Dust, Theodore Roosevelt, War in the Philippines, and his newest book, The Last Stand at Quezon, The U.S. Marines' Finest Hour in Vietnam. Welcome, Greg. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, Selena. Whereabouts are you and how's lockdown? Uh, so I am in uh, the Dallas, Texas area, and uh, Texas has officially reopened, and um, uh, we are waiting to see what plays out the next few weeks. So uh, some people still wearing masks, many people not wearing masks. So uh, we shall see. The word second wave spring to mind. Yes. Um, and how is everything there with the uh, current social situation? Um, there have been protests uh, like virtually every major city in the US. Uh, it hasn't been as, uh, severe a response from the authorities as there have been in other cities but um, you know things are simmering here as elsewhere. Let's talk about some history um, and take a break from the real world because that's what we exist for on History Hacks, give people some escapism. Um, we're going to talk about a remarkable incident. Um, for our listeners who know very little about the Vietnam War and because you are the first person to come on and talk about it, could you just give us an overview because um, it's like a, a wormhole tunnel to go down, but just a quick overview of how America has come to be in Vietnam, why it started, um, and then we'll get on to Quezon. Absolutely. Um, so so uh, to condense it as much as possible, that, that the U.S. was involved in French Indochina, which became uh, Vietnam, um, really at the end of World War II. And so the U.S. had a presence uh, of uh, OSS, uh, sort of the commando, the, the predecessor of the Central Intelligence Agency. And they were actually working with uh, Ho Chi Minh and his, um, his uh, Vietnamese, Viet Minh uh, guerrillas, the anti-French forces. Uh, in 1954, the French were forced to leave Vietnam uh, after the siege at Dien Bien Phu, which by uh, 
the Viet Minh, the Ho, uh, uh, Ho Chi Minh's uh, communist forces uh, surrounded a, a remote French outpost at Dien Bien Phu, and the French surrendered, and that uh, set in motion the French departure from Vietnam. The United States then uh, essentially became the dominant power in Vietnam. And so things simmered through the late 50s. Uh, and then uh, in 1959, those are the first official recorded U.S. deaths in Vietnam. The first names on the wall in Washington, D.C. come from 1959. So uh, this was sort of a, the classic low-intensity conflict through the early 60s, through the uh, the three years of John F. Kennedy's presidency. Uh, and then in 1965, Lyndon Johnson uh, dramatically escalated the U.S. presence in the war. And in early 1965, sent in the Marines. And that uh, uh, rapidly became then the... Uh, uh, the war as we know it, of the U.S. just quickly getting deeper and deeper and the casualties starting to soar uh, as we went through 66, 67, 68. So let's skip through, well, pretty much that whole part of the war, about 13 years forward to 1968. And we come to the Battle of Quezon, which the New York Times called the major battle of the Vietnam War. Talk us through what was happening in, Viet in the Vietnam War at the time, just before the battle. So to quickly set the stage that 67 had been a, a very bad year in terms of uh, rising U.S. casualties, uh, expanding combat. Uh, at the same time, uh, Lyndon Johnson was facing... Uh, a growing anti-war movement in the U.S., so very similar to the uh, demonstrations and, and uh, riots and clashes between uh, protesters and authorities that we're seeing right now in, in the United States. Uh, these were really starting to spike in 1967. Uh, both the U.S. and uh, the Vietnamese communist forces saw 1968 as the decisive year. Both were planning uh, separately, obviously, uh, their end games for how 68 would be the decisive determinant year in the war in Vietnam. And so the, the, the Vietnamese communist forces, you had the, um, what the Americans referred to as the Viet Cong, the indigenous uh, forces uh, in South, which was the U.S.-supported uh, part of Vietnam. And then in the north, uh, Hanoi, uh, Ho Chi Minh uh, and his forces, they were sending large numbers of men, women, and materiel south into South Vietnam to sustain and expand the war. So this was the backdrop of, of Johnson was going to be facing re-election in 1968. He needed to show progress. He needed to show that victory was coming into sight. Uh, in the North, you had communist forces who were determined to strike a, a decisive blow that would force the Americans from the war. 
and toppled the U.S.-supported regime in Saigon. Um, late in 67, U.S. intelligence started uh, collecting uh, evidence of a large buildup of North Vietnamese forces uh, along the demilitarized zone, the line that divided North and South Vietnam. So there was clearly some sort of big move that North Vietnam was planning. And uh, the question was, where was the blow going to fall in the South? Uh, to set the stage, Quezon, uh, the U.S. had a line of forts and strong points going uh, east to west. Uh, if you uh, imagine that line, the DMZ that separates north and south, there was an old French road, Route 9, mm. that crossed from the coast in the east along the South China Sea, um, going west into the uh, foothills of the Annamite Range headed toward uh, Cambodia. And so the U.S. had, uh, excuse me, toward uh, Laos at that point, um, so Cambodia further south. So Route 9 ran from uh, almost the coast uh, into the Annamite foothills uh, it, to the border with Laos and into Laos. Uh, and so just across that border in Laos, that's where the so-called Ho Chi Minh Trail, the resupply routes, were running south through the jungle. And that's where all of these North Vietnamese forces were pouring down. So the U.S. had established this series of strong points uh, along Route 9. And Quezon was the end of the line. This was where there were 6,000 U.S. Marines holding this remote outpost that by early 1968 was accessible only by air, only by helicopter or fixed wing aircraft. So it was very vulnerable. And that became the focal point of a massing of North Vietnamese troops in late 1967 and early 1968. And um, up Shit Creek without a paddle springs to mind. Uh, absolutely. And, and, um, General Westmore, William Westmoreland, mm. the supreme U.S. commander, was essentially dangling the Marines at Quezon as bait. Westmoreland wanted this decisive confrontation. He believed that if he could draw Vietnamese communist forces into a large conventional battle, that the U.S. artillery and air power could destroy and deal a decisive defeat. So he was essentially using these 6,000 Marines at Quezon, and there were um, a small number of U.S. Army uh, Special Forces as well at, a, at a, uh, a camp just outside Quezon Combat Base, the Marine Base. Um, so the Marines were bait, essentially, for this decisive confrontation that William Westmoreland was hoping for. Wow. Um so the battle begins on the 21st of January, 1968. Tell us what happens for the first two weeks. So uh, first in vision, the, the combat base was, that was the main strong point, but there was a fan-shaped uh, array of outposts of small uh, company sized in most cases, some cases even smaller, outposts that the Marines were manning that were the outer defenses of Quezon. 
And so um, they were guarding the approaches that the expected approaches that the communists would take coming from La uh, Laos in the West. Uh, and so the, the first attack was uh, during the night of January 20th, 21st on an outpost called Hill 861. And uh, the, the uh, perimeter was breached by a North Vietnamese army force. And there was this desperate fight through the night, uh, in some instances, hand-to-hand -hand combat. Uh, and um, uh, my interviews with men uh, who served on Hill 861 and other outposts, it's unimaginable. Um, the, the, the terror, the, uh, the sense of desperation, the sense of isolation that these men felt as uh, there, there's a, 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 the size of the enemy force is unknown, you're being attacked, they, they had been probed, uh, there would be sappers that would be blowing up the uh, uh, concertina wire, the, the coils of uh, uh, razor wire that ringed these outposts, and suddenly then uh, these attackers would be in the trench line or would be uh, uh, right in your face. And so uh, this was the first attack early that morning, as the Marines had finally driven back the attack on Hill 861, a massive artillery bombardment uh, targeted the combat base itself. And then uh, there also was a ground attack on Quezon Village, where there was a small U.S. advisory outpost and uh, South Vietnamese uh, military force. And so you had these coordinated attacks and that's really set the stage for the first couple of weeks of those initial blows, then uh, constant sniping, bombardment, mortar attacks, rocket fire, and this gradual tightening of lines as the North Vietnamese forces encircled all of the American outposts in the combat base. And, and you know, really imagine uh, uh, an anaconda uh, encircling and trying to, to strangle and cut off these U.S. forces and these U.S. outposts one by one. So on the 5th of February, the crisis in Quezon begins, doesn't it? Uh, absolutely. So, so the question all along was, could the Marines be resupplied by air? Again, keep in mind, Route 9, the overland route to supply the Marines, had been cut uh, months earlier. So they were completely dependent on fixed-wing aircraft landing at Quezon Combat Base. Uh, and they were coming under fire, and so uh, it very much was in doubt whether or not these fixed-wing uh, uh, flights could be maintained. And then the hill outposts that were guarding the approaches, that were essentially preventing the North Vietnamese from gaining the high ground, like they did against the French at Dien Bien Phu in 1954, that, that those hill outposts were critical to preventing Quezon from uh, really being put in an indefensible position. So um, this was the question that was weighing on the Americans on the ground and weighing on uh, President Lyndon Johnson in Washington. And so uh, the, the, those days from January 2021, through the end of the month, um, and, and then culminating in 
the first in a series of ground attacks on February 5th that you're referencing. Um, these were very tense uh, days. Um, keep in mind that two other extraordinary things happened as, as this uh, drama was building a case on was um, in late January, the U.S. spy ship, the USS Pueblo, was seized by North Korea. Um, and then uh, at the end of the month, uh, January 30, 31, the first attacks on urban centers in South Vietnam began. The so-called Tet Offensive began. And so all of a sudden, this seemed to Lyndon Johnson, and it seemed to Westmoreland and his commanders, that there was this coordinated effort, the, the monolithic communist force, as was incorrectly seen by Johnson and his advisors, uh, was, seemed to be making this, this move uh, to tip the balance of the Cold War and Vietnam and then the uh, seizure of the Pueblo were uh, these very unnerving events that, that uh, uh, had unnerved Johnson and Westmoreland and, and Americans uh, back on the home front. So the next phase of the communist plan on the ground was to start picking off these outposts one by one that were guarding the approaches to Vietnam. And the first one hit uh, on February 5th was an outpost called Hill 861 Alpha. And there was a, um, a terrible uh, fight. Again, the classic North Vietnamese tactics of striking in the early morning hours, four or five in the morning, uh, breaching the wire uh, with explosives and then trying to overrun the outpost. And so there was this desperate fight that, that became the first of, in a series, in a sequence of attacks on these outposts. H61 Alpha held, uh, again, with uh, uh, the extraordinary firepower, the artillery that the U.S. was able to put, literally walk it right up to the front perimeter of Hill 861 Alpha. Um, that broke the North Vietnamese attack, but it was a, a very harrowing attack and another uh, seven or eight Marines killed, uh, 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 three times as many wounded. Uh, and this sort of became the template for what played out over the, the next week or two. Um, tell us about the siege's climax and what happened. So these uh, attacks had happened in February. The sequence of attacks, the um, uh, Army Special Forces uh, camp uh, at Long Bay, just uh, uh, four or five miles southwest of Quezon Combat Base, it actually was overrun and taken over uh, by communist forces. And so um, the, the focal point then became the, the combat base itself, that these attacks on the outposts sort of simmered down. And then uh, you had probes and shelling of the combat base itself. And so the combat base, there was this great, great concern that, that there would be this Massed, huge massed attack, this human wave attack that uh, U.S. forces feared everywhere in Vietnam. And again, this is happening against the backdrop of the fighting in Hue uh, and the attacks on Vietnamese cities up and down the coast. So um, the, the forces at Quezon Combat Base itself were bracing for the big one, this huge massive attack 
that they they uh, uh, many expected that the lines would be breached and they would be fighting for their lives hand-to-hand combat. Um, instead, uh, the communist forces were bled um, uh, by the incessant artillery fire, airstrikes, any time that uh, massed Vietnamese forces, North Vietnamese forces were seen, um, they faced um, uh, fire from artillery or bombing. The U.S. was even bringing in B-52 strikes, B-52s from the island of Guam, and they brought them in even closer. They made a special dispensation to bring them in closer than the allowed range because of these massive attacks that that were uh, uh, could could rupture eardrums for uh, uh, any individuals that were within a uh, uh, thousand to fifteen hundred meters. So uh, these uh, attacks were basically keeping uh, and, and the bombing, the artillery, and the airstrikes were keeping the base alive and keeping the airstrip open. And so there were attacks. Um, this gets into one of the interesting, uh, enduring mysteries and questions of Quezon, and, and uh, uh, that is what were the ultimate intentions of the North Vietnamese, and there is a, a school of thought that Quezon was a ruse, was only trying to uh, distract American forces so the attacks on Hue and other cities could succeed. Um, others uh, argue that this was part of a sequence of events, uh, of events and that Quezon was going to be the ultimate showdown after the attacks on the cities succeeded. But what is known, what we can say with certainty, is that there were some strong attacks, uh, but never the attack that, that actually breached the wire and overran the base. Just getting, uh, uh, sort of bringing us up to the, that month of, of February, there was one other w- event I want to mention because this is absolutely critical, critical and it shows how uh, it, dire the situation was. <laughs> and and uh, uh, the U.S. was considering the use of tactical nuclear weapons to uh, um actually to, to save Quezon in case of this massive human wave attack. And so, so you actually had uh, Lyndon Johnson, uh, who was considering uh, this, weighing this. Uh, this was being debated with General Westmoreland. And so, um, um, you know, it was a really uh, extraordinary um, uh, two weeks in February. Uh, and then... Um, the pressure seemed to ease a little bit, and through March, um, there was gradually uh, a lessening of um, uh, of this pressure, uh, and uh, and then um, we had this this breakout, um, uh, this effort to relieve the combat base, and this was ap- actually uh, Operation Pegasus, which launched inland uh, up Route 9 and massive force uh, with air cab units, uh, army uh, forces coming up uh, and clearing the the ground route uh, and the ultimate uh, objective being uh, joining with the Marines at Quezon Combat Base. And so over the courses, uh, over the course of uh, uh, seven or eight days in early April, uh, Pegasus was launched on April 1st. Uh, pushed inland, uh, heavy fighting, 
um, in places, air cab units jumping ahead and uh, fighting there. And then the actual uh, link up uh, occurred at Quezon Combat Base around uh, April 8th. Um, and, and, uh, and so the, the siege was officially broken at that point. Let's discuss, um, there's a nuclear option, isn't there? And it's one way they could have won the battle, wasn't it? Uh, correct. So, so the, um, during the dark days of early February, when, when it was very unclear whether a caisson could be sustained by air, uh, and keep in mind the combat base itself could uh, have fixed wing flights, but increasingly those were perilous that you had snipers, you had mortars, you had uh, uh, North Vietnamese forces firing rockets. And so uh, uh, a, a, a aircraft were being damaged um, and uh, it was increasingly difficult to get in um, uh, the, the amount of supplies required to sustain the Marines at the combat base. The outposts actually required, uh, they could only accept uh, helicopter resupply, and those were uh, even more perilous, and so it was unclear. So with all of this hanging in the balance, the uh, uncertainty of whether or not Quezon was going to be overrun, that William Westmoreland uh, and uh, uh, Lyndon Johnson uh, were actually... Uh, weighing whether the use of tactical nuclear weapons might be required to save Quezon. And um, there, there was um, a, um, uh, a, a conviction that if, uh, and, and Westmoreland conveyed this in cables back to Washington th through his chain of command, um, that uh, nuclear weapons in a worst case scenario could be required. Tactical nuclear weapons could be required. Um, this was horrifying, obviously, uh, but Lyndon Johnson was determined not to lose Quezon. Um, there was a, a New York Times story uh, that came out a couple of years ago that I, I took uh, significant issue with because it suggested that, uh, that, that Johnson was actually trying to rein in West Westmoreland and Johnson was opposed to this. Um, and I, I think that this is a, a misreading of the documents and a misreading of the, uh, of the actual history that um, Johnson was certainly not eager to use tactical nuclear weapons in Vietnam, but mm. he was determined to not lose Quezon. And if Quezon was being overrun, um, I have no doubt that, that uh, LBJ uh, to avoid a catastrophic defeat uh, on the level of the French loss at Dien Bien Phu, that, that LBJ would have considered and possibly even authorized the use of tactical nuclear weapons at Quezon. So I think it's, it's, it's uh, wrong to suggest that this was a rogue General Westmoreland pushing for the introduction of nuclear weapons in Vietnam and a, um, and a very calm, sober Lyndon Johnson sitting in Washington saying, uh, we can't go there, that um, uh, to the contrary, Johnson was uh, almost in a state of panic uh, during those first two weeks of February. He had the CIA built a, um, a tabletop model of Quezon. He was padding down to the Situation Room in the morning, listening to casualty reports coming in and obsessing over this model of what the latest developments were 
at Quezon. So um, this, this was a, um, uh, really a, a shocking thing, and word leaked. And, and only after word leaked that weapons, nuclear weapons were being considered did Johnson shut this down. But it's, it's uh, an error. It's simply not correct to suggest this was a rogue Westmoreland and that uh, Johnson was appalled by the idea and immediately shut it down, that Johnson had authorized contingency planning for the possible use of tactical nuclear weapons to save Quezon. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm assuming, and I'm going to be right, that our listeners desperately want you to tell us, as do I and Alex, about some of the heroes that feature in your book, like Ed Feldman or Steve Slick, uh, VC, or some of the fearless young officers who led their troops into battle? Absolutely. The, uh, uh, Alex and Alina, what, what are the things that, that really drew me to, to do this book? Uh, I was born in 1959, and so uh, I, I was born in the shadow of World War II, but then the Vietnam War really became... Uh, this cloud over America and, mm-hmm. and my, my hometown, uh, my, the area where I lived, uh, throughout my childhood. And so um, uh, I, I was fascinated by this. Uh, it was on the front page of my hometown newspaper every day from pretty much from 1966 on. And so um, I read everything I could uh, uh, from an early age about Vietnam and, and I uh, became really obsessed with trying to know and understand what these men experienced on the ground there. And, and there were all these protests going on, the anti-war protests, the, the uh, uh, things like the, the My Lai massacre stories that came out of, uh, of the uh, atrocities and misbehavior by U.S. forces on the ground, and I, I became uh, quite interested in insurgencies, guerrilla warfare. Uh, I wrote my first book in, uh, in the, the Philippines uh, in 1989 on the communist insurgency there, which uh, was somewhat modeled on the struggle in Vietnam. Uh, it was a Maoist movement, but also drew inspiration and, and uh, uh, tactics from what was happening in Vietnam. 
So I, I was fascinated with what would it have been like if I had been born 10 years earlier? What yeah. would it have been like to be on the ground uh, uh, under this uh, tremendous pressure, this, this fear of losing your life, this, um, this, this war that was so difficult to fight because of uh, uh, the irregular uh, aspects of it, of not knowing who your friend was, not knowing uh, who might be trying to kill you, the booby traps and all of that. So I, I really wanted to take readers uh, into the trench lines and to have them experience the siege of Quezon through the experience of these young men, uh, 18, 19, 20, 21 years old, um, of what it was like what it was like, the camaraderie, the brotherhood, uh, what it was like to lose friends, what it was like to be attacked at three or four in the morning and, and almost be overrun. So I, I started the book by um, this, this um, uh, I wound up interviewing about 90 uh, Marines who had fought at Quezon. Um, one of them, uh, I, I opened the book with this young Marine named Kim Warner, uh, Ken Warner, and uh, Ken had um, led a patrol off the most vulnerable outpost, Hill 881 South, uh, that was guarding the approach from the west. And uh, Ken had, had led a, a small patrol, um, you know, squad size, handful of Marines down 881 South, uh, trying to see what was out there, that this was jungle surrounding them. And uh, Ken had a harrowing experience in the week before the siege of where he stumbled onto a North Vietnamese uh, camp in the jungle, and uh, they were walking step by step through this stream, and at one point they stopped, and they could hear splash, splash, splash behind them, that they were being trailed, and then they stumbled on this camp. They knew that they were surrounded, and so Ken, uh, they just knew that they were about to be uh, blown away by a fusillade of, of enemy fire. And so they, as quietly as they could, which at that point was impossible, that, that the enemy soldiers knew exactly where they were, um, they withdrew and tried to retrace their steps up this hillside. They were allowed to live, that the North Vietnamese were not ready to launch the attack. Um, they were allowed to live. Kim was seriously wounded in an ambush a couple of days later uh, and was medevaced and later came back to rejoin his unit uh, in the final weeks of the siege. Uh, but to be able to tell the story of a young Marine like Kim, who uh, was suddenly you know, thrust in this terrifying uh, uh, situation, uh, uh, was extraordinary. Uh, you mentioned Steve Weesey. Steve uh, sadly just died uh, a few months ago. was an extraordinary uh, Marine in uh, a unit, uh, Bravo 126, so Bravo Company. Uh, and they had been involved in uh, two of the most uh, dramatic uh, incidents uh, in, in a series of very dramatic incidents at Quezon on February 25th. 1968. So at that point, uh, a little more than a month in the siege, that Bravo 126 sent out a patrol outside the wire 
at Quezon Combat Base. And they were just going out to have a look-see, just to see what was going on out there, uh, how close were enemy trenches, what what was could they see enemy uh, forces? So this young um, lieutenant leads the patrol, um, and it was supposed to be a, a classic diamond-shaped patrol, radio, radioing back to their commander at, at every checkpoint, and to not get too far uh, beyond, so they didn't get into trouble. Well, the, this patrol wound up getting ambushed. And uh, Steve uh, was uh, caught in this horrible crossfire and Marines all around him were being slaughtered. And Steve and and those who survived um, literally had to try to crawl their way out of uh, the killing field, the the, uh, killing box that the ambush uh, had set up. And, and then try to individually pick their way back through the jungle uh, to the combat base, uh, which was uh, several hundred yards away. And so uh, Steve uh, amazingly survived that uh, without a scratch, but it was just um, a- an extraordinary act of bravery. Um, and uh, there were other Marines on that particular incident um, uh, a, a medic, uh, John Sakala, uh, Doc Sakala, as he was known, that uh, uh, um, that um, were were horribly wounded and also uh, had to crawl back. A young Marine named Cal Bright, uh, who uh, was one of the youngest men in the outfit, um, a farm boy from Michigan, uh, cut off again on his own individually. Uh, trying to get back, and he came a, upon a marine with a, uh, a dead marine with a radio, and and trying to radio back and figure out how do I get out of this mess? How do I survive? Um, these stories are, you know, they 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 were uh, harrowing, heartbreaking. The loss of comrades, what that does to young men. It's um, uh, it, it's just unspeakable things that they uh, experienced and endured. And, um, you know, for me, being able to tell the story of what it was like and to preserve for history some of the, these stories, some of these young men who did not make it back, um, uh, for me, that was one of the, the uh, highest rewards of uh, undertaking this project. It's just phenomenal that you interviewed so many of them and you're right it just you have to write this stuff down while they're still here can you tell us about the evacuation of Quezon uh, absolutely so uh, after the the months of siege and then that period of April uh, into the spring uh, there continued to be quite heavy fighting and heavy losses of uh, Marines the Marines had kind of retaken uh, new groups of Marines had taken over outposts um, and so the decision was made to abandon the combat base and to withdraw U.S. forces a few miles further east up Route 9. And so the Hill outposts uh, were first evacuated and the, uh, the Marines choppered off those and then uh, gradually getting closer to the combat base. And then in early July of uh, 1968, 
uh, the Marines, the last Marines, in a scene that was sort of eerily um, uh, uh, evocative, um, almost a uh, foreshadowing of what happened in Saigon in 1975. Uh, the Marines were blowing up uh, positions, uh, things that might be used by the enemy at Quezon Combat Base, and then running aboard aircraft uh, that, that were taking them away as they evacuated and abandoned Quezon Combat Base. Um, so, uh, and predictably, um, Hanoi made uh, uh, much propaganda fodder of the abandonment and uh, you know, mocking references uh, and uh, uh, triumphal claims of victory. Uh, so it was sort of the, the last sour note in many ways of the Quezon saga. Um, what were the total casualties? So that's another point of dispute, like so many things with Quezon. Yeah. The, the, the official casualties were somewhere on the order of 250, which is way low. Uh, no question. Um, there, there was a, um, uh, a chaplain, a Navy chaplain, a Quezon attached to the Marines, uh, Ray Stubbe, who became uh, an extraordinary uh, figure. He was an extraordinary figure during the siege, a person of great uh, moral and physical courage, uh, and Ray then became uh, really the first Quezon historian that, that uh, everyone who has come after him has stood on Ray's shoulders. Uh, and, and Ray was documenting uh, the numbers of casualties, wounded, uh, killed. And um, the best we can say is something uh, above 1,000 Marines lost their lives um, over a period of several months at Quezon, and, and there were, um, uh, the number of wounded was, uh, I believe it, it was a multiple of three, something on that order. But um, uh, it, it clearly was much more than the official number, and it's, uh, it's unfortunate that, that, that for, uh, for whatever reasons, um, it's been well documented that there were efforts by General Westmoreland to suppress casualty numbers to inflate enemy body counts and, and things like that. But in any event, uh, we know that um, somewhat uh, more than 1,000 Marines uh, and uh, special forces, uh, other forces lost their lives at Quezon. So where does Quezon sit in the history of the Vietnam, Vietnam War? What is its importance and was it worth it? Um, so those are all uh, great questions that, uh, that continue to be debated. Um, you know, the, the first, all, uh, you know, first off, the, um, um, the evacuation, uh, the abandonment of the base in early July, uh, that became, um, a, for many correspondents and, and uh, some historians, a metaphor for the U.S. effort in Vietnam. The fact that uh, much blood and treasure was spent to successfully defend Quezon, uh, and then it was abandoned. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and some of the Marines I interviewed, there was a remarkable young Marine uh, named Dennis Mannion, who was an artillery forward observer on Hill 861. Dennis told me the story of, he, he was um, posted elsewhere in I-Corps, the, the northern provinces near the DNC, uh, when he heard the news in early July that Quezon um, had been abandoned and, and he was devastated 
by that. He, he couldn't believe you know, the sacrifice and the comrades lost. For what? Uh, and so that's how some of the Marines themselves viewed it as, you know, the, the, you know, what did we fight and die for? What did we successfully endure this ordeal for? Um, so the larger significance is uh, another subject of debate and, uh, um, and the, the argument that, you know, in a, um, in a strategic sense, the Quezon really um, didn't mean much, that uh, it, it did not uh, tip the balance of the war in one way or the other. But I think that you, you, you have to see Quezon in terms of the psychological impact, that and the Tet Offensive. And, and these are two connected but separate events. And I think Quezon gets lumped in uh, with the Tet Offensive, uh, and, and it really was a separate event that needs to be viewed separately. Um, and I think the psychological impact of that um, was significant, and that contributed to the sense in America of, my God, what is going on over there? That we've been told that there is light at the end of the tunnel, that victory is near, that, that 1968 was going to be the year of triumph, and the fact that the North Vietnamese possessed in enough strength to tie down the Marines at Quezon in the fashion they did, that that contributed, uh, rightly or wrongly, to this impression in the U.S. that things weren't quite what they seemed to be, weren't what Americans were being told they were. So I think in that sense that Quezon and Tet were very significant events, even uh, if you accept the argument that Tet was a severe military defeat the, for the communist forces and the, the forces that they lost, the forces they lost at Quezon, which I believe uh, a good argument can be made that, that they lost um, several thousand, you know, anywhere from three to 10,000 men uh, at Quezon. So significant losses. Um, and so in a strict military sense that, uh, those were victories, but um, they both contributed to the erosion of U.S. confidence in the war effort. And so I think in those senses that uh, these were important milestones in this process of destroying the U.S. will to continue to fight in Vietnam. I'm really interested to know, um, how did the American media react to the battle so the, the media was uh, obsessed uh, with it, much as LBJ was, um, and getting into Quezon was no easy feat. So you would have to hitch a ride uh, from um, you know, one, one of the bases closer to the coast in the east, and so you'd have to hitch a ride on a transport that was headed in. And so um, there was coverage, but correspondence uh, could only get in quickly, get out, um, and so uh, it did become a television event early on that uh, television crews, uh, a lot of Americans got their information from uh, the evening news broadcast at that time, uh, the network broadcast that my family was a CBS News family. And so every evening we had CBS evening news on during, um, during dinner. And so uh, there was this footage of uh, aircraft 
uh, trying to land under fire at Quezon, of uh, uh, the wreckage of helicopters or fixed-wing aircraft that had been damaged or, or uh, uh, controlled crashes on the runway. And so um, the media was, uh, it was saturation coverage uh, for a matter of weeks. The news magazines were very powerful uh, at the time, Newsweek and Time, and uh, they both did cover stories and were covering it. And um, there were repeated references to the French defeat at Dien Bien Phu in 1954. And so that was, that was hanging over all of the coverage was, is this going to be America's Dien Bien Phu? Is Quezon going to be America's Dien Bien Phu? And so there was heavy coverage uh, that was hammering this home, uh, radio, television, and newspaper, news magazine coverage. And so Americans were inundated and were quite obsessed uh, with following the events there for several weeks through January, February, and March of 1968. There's always a revisionist historical narrative, isn't there? Especially one from the 1980s. Can you tell us more about that? Uh, yes. So, so um, you know, the... the um, um, Again, you, you, you had the war coverage, the, you know, the way the war was uh, uh, seen during the war, the anti-war movement was, um, uh, was quite strong, and um, you know, American attitudes toward the Vietnam War became very negative uh, after the, the U.S. had uh, essentially withdrawn combat forces in 1973 as part of the Paris Peace Accords. And then in 75, the fall of Saigon, there was this tremendous backlash in the United States, uh, backlash against military interventions, backlash against the military. Um, and, and then in the, um, in the 1980s, um, you, you had this turn that started to happen. And you had the um, uh, Sylvester Stallone Rambo movies and uh, the Chuck Norris Missing in Action series. Yeah. It was sort of in, you know, that same vein of where uh, it suddenly became uh, Vietnam and uh, uh, service there um, suddenly became cool, if I may be uh, a little flippant there. And I don't, yeah. I don't direct that at, uh, at the men who served, but uh, at public attitudes, that suddenly public attitudes began to change. And, and, and so there was a second look. Um, now, the U.S. remains very divided to this day. Uh, you know, the culture wars, the polarism that, that uh, uh, you know, the polarization that exists in the United States today, uh, Vietnam continues to be viewed through those competing, the lens of those competing narratives. And so, you know, you have those who continue to believe that this was an honorable conflict, uh, that the politicians uh, tied the hands of, of the combatants behind their backs, and the media and the politicians lost the war. You have a, a view further to the left, uh, that this was an unjust war, that this was wrong, that um, uh, it, it was based on a misreading of history and historical forces. Uh, and uh, uh, the U.S. Uh, uh, was guilty of atrocities and, and uh, uh, wanton civilian deaths. So, so there have been books and that narrative has been 
hammered home as well. So these narratives continue to compete and case on as uh, sort of caught, uh, you know, between these competing narratives of, of um, you know, how it's viewed. And, uh, but there, you know, the, the stories of what these men did, um, I think that there is, uh, you know, a much more uh, a willingness to accept and to understand. And I think the U.S. going through Iraq and Afghanistan of, of learning to be a little more sophisticated in separating the conflict and the merits of a conflict with um, the, the men and women who wear the uniform and fight, that, that I think that we have a little bit more of a mature uh, ability to separate that, um, but not entirely, that you know, this is still a very contentious subject of debate, even with the revisionist views that started to take hold in the 1980s. Thank you so much, Greg, for coming on to give us an insight. Um, and I know it's we've done a very specific battle, but I think we've really brought out some of the experience of fighting in Vietnam for some of the young men that went over there. And it's been a great start to what we hope will be many more programs that look into the conflict and highlight awareness of it. Thank, thank you, Alex and Alina. Thank you for what you all are doing to um, to bring history home to people, uh, particularly during these unsettling months of quarantine, that uh, uh, what you're doing and uh, the cheekiness with which you're, you're doing <laughs> is, uh, uh, I think is fantastic. Greg, before we finish, um, your book on this is award-winning. Uh, do tell everyone the name of it um, so that they can get hold of a copy if they want to know more. Uh, so Last Stand at Quezon, uh, U.S. Marine's Finest Hour, uh, in Vietnam. Thank you very much. I, uh, I, I enjoyed doing this book again. You know, for me, this was an exploration of, uh, of a uh, chapter from my childhood as well and, and wondering, you know, if, what would have happened had I been there. But uh, uh, the book is available and uh, um, happy to hear from readers. Thank you so much. Um, and you must come back because you wrote um, a book as well. We had James Scott on to talk about the battle for Manila in 1945. You have written a book about how the Americans came to be in Manila and you were there for many years and we would love to have you back to talk about sort of American colonialism. Uh, I'd love to, uh, love to do that. Look forward to it. Uh, James Scott is a friend of mine and a wonderful book, Rampage. And uh, uh, so, yeah, the Philippines, uh, a fascinating subject and a fascinating moment in American history. Uh, so I uh, uh, look forward to it. Thanks so much. Join us tomorrow when we will be talking to Helen Carr about John of Gaunt. We need to do more medieval stuff for you. And this one's great. A real interesting character, very close to the throne at a time when it was occupied by Richard II. I'm struggling to think of something nice to say about him. But uh, what I'm driving at is that John of Gaunt needed to be pretty damn good at what he did because his nephew wasn't. There now follows a public service announcement. I'm Horatia Hornblower. And I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you both. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues 
your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 